We'll hear argument this morning in case 06856, LaRue versus the Wolf, Berberg and Associates. Mr. Stris. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Let me begin with the first question on which this Court has granted certiorari. Sections 502A2 and 409 of ERISA permit restoration of, quote, any losses to the plan. What, what are the code numbers of those? I really get confused. You, you people who work with ERISA all the time can refer to, you know, Section 3 of ERISA. I, I use the code. What, what, what code sections are you talking about? I never thought the day would come, Justice Scalia, when I was described as working with ERISA all of the time, but I will tell you the code provision. Uh, the code provision is for 502A2 of ERISA is 29 U.S.C. 1132A2. It's found on page 10A of the Blue Brief. Good. Section 409 of ERISA is 29 U.S.C. 1109. And I was quoting specifically from 1109A, and that is found on page 9A of the Blue Brief. Thank you. Now, the, the statute plainly states that, quote, any losses to the plan, unquote, may be recovered uh, if they were caused by fiduciary breach. Our position on the A2 question is straightforward. The plain meaning of any losses to the plan includes any diminution in value of defined contribution plan assets, regardless of the number of participants ultimately affected. But the, the plan itself is nowhere in the record, is that right? Well, the summary plan description was attached to the complaint. Right. The summary. And I looked at the summary and saw nowhere the rules about investment options, who, what you get to choose, how often. And for all we know, the plan might say you have no choice about investment options. It's all going to be invested in T-bills or whatever. Respectfully, Mr. Chief Justice, that, that's not true. I would point your attention to page 19A of the appendix to the brief in opposition. And this is the page of the summary plan description that makes clear that participants in the plan, like Mr. LaRue, will have the opportunity to direct their investments. But that wasn't in the record. That is in the record. It is in the record. Yes. And to be clear, Justice Scalia. Where where in the record is it? It it is page 19A of the. No, no, that's in the opposition to certiorari. And I don't know, I don't believe that that's in the record. Oh, it is in the record. It was attached to the complaint that was filed by Mr. LaRue in this case. Oh, that's the summary of the plan. The summary plan description, that's correct. And as you know, Mr. Chief Justice, if there's a conflict between the summary plan description and the plan, the summary plan description governs. It's a, it's it a says legitimate s- document. The, the summary on the page you mentioned says that um, you will be able to, you have certain investment choices are available to you, and that the administrator will provide you with information on what they are and how you can change it. That is correct. Well, we don't know those details, correct? That's true, but this case was decided at the pleading stage. And so, to be clear, we alleged that the right given to Mr. LaRue under the plan was violated. If true, then that would constitute a fiduciary breach. It would also, presumably, more obviously, constitute a breach of the plan, correct? Which, yes, that's correct, and that is a, a fiduciary breach under 404A1D, Failure to act in accordance with the terms of the plan is a classic example of a breach of fiduciary duty. So your your position is anything that is remediable under, if that's a word, under A1 uh, can also be pursued under A2? No, that is not my position. Let me me step back. Do you agree that you could bring an action under A1 for this breach of the plan? 
I think that's far from clear, but what is clear is that we could not recover what we wanted under A-1. A-1 only permits a lawsuit against the plan. Here, the plan doesn't have the funds. Where, that are where, where does it say that A-1 is available only against the plan? The specific language of A-1 doesn't state that. It states that you can get benefits due under the plan or you can enforce your rights under the plan. I'm not aware of a single case, Justice Ginsburg, where an A-1-B action has been permitted to recover personally from a fiduciary. That is the purpose of A-2, which specifically states that you can personally recover from a fiduciary. That's fine. So why doesn't he proceed first under uh, A-1-B against the plan? Well, I — Because the the plan owes him this money, and uh, if the plan turns around and says, well, you know, the fiduciary didn't invest your funds the way it was supposed to, the the plan still owes him the money, doesn't it? Um, I think the answer to that — I think there are two reasons why that's incorrect. And the first reason is — 502A2, unlike 502A3, is not a catch-all provision. So if he has a remedy under 502A2 — No, I'm talking, it, about a, I'm talking about A1B. Right. And it, yeah. there's nothing to suggest that that provision is mutually exclusive with another provision. So my first response to your question, Justice Scalia, is that even if he could have proceeded under A1B, there is nothing to suggest that he had to — if he wanted to proceed under the express well, term of A2. there is this to suggest it, that only, only that manner of proceeding preserves uh, the structure of, of the legislation, which is that you're supposed to first apply to the plan and exhaust your remedies there before you come into court. And interpreting it that way would, would preserve that, uh, that exhaustion requirement. You have to apply to the plan first. And if you establish that the plan owes you money, then it's a loss to the plan and you can sue in court. Uh, well, what I would say to that, Justice Scalia, is that this administrative exhaustion requirement that you're referring to is a judicial gloss on the statute. I find it hard to believe that the express terms of A2, which pl- the plain language authorizes restoration to the plan of any losses to the plan for well, any Mr. breach Mr. of duty. Your, your approach, if you can go under A2, you're, you're right that we judicially have developed a number of glosses on A1, including, I think most importantly, the Firestone deference principle. But if you're right that you can go under A2, then all of that work has been in vain. Uh, you can avoid all the limitations on A1 just by saying we want the same relief under A2. I would not agree with that characterization because there are very few cases where the specific conditions for A2 are met. You would need to prove a loss to the plan. In welfare plan cases, for example, you would not be able to proceed under A2 because you would never be able to show that the fiduciary breach caused a loss to the plan. You told me earlier that any breach of the plan was a fiduciary duty. That's correct. Now, you're, you're the, what is it, the obverse or the converse of that you're saying is not true? That, no, that's not true. There are two requirements for an A2 action. One is that there be a fiduciary breach. That's what you just spoke to when you referred to a breach of the term of the plan. But there's a second important requirement, which goes to the heart of why A2 is what it is. There must be a loss to the plan. As this Court recognizes — Can I ask you whether the A2 argument would be available to you on remand, even if we agree with your interpretation of that provision? Didn't Judge Wilkinson say pretty clearly that the argument had been waived? He said, even if the argument were not therefore waived, doesn't that mean that it was waived? 
I don't read the Fourth Circuit's decision that way. I, I read it as as as, a, as dicta, not an alternative holding, holding. And to be clear, the respondents concede that point on page five of their brief in opposition. And I quote: They state, after suggesting this claim may have been waived, unquote, and then they proceed. So even respondent agrees that it was merely. Well, maybe they maybe they've waived, waived the waiver, but. I mean, Judge Wilkinson is a careful writer, and if you use the subjunctive there, even if the argument were not therefore waived, doesn't that mean it was, in fact, waived? N- not in my opinion, but that's an issue that the Fourth Circuit and the lower courts will need to resolve. If they interpret their opinion as having held that, certainly we would be precluded. I don't think that that is what they held. And I think we have a very strong argument that we pled a 502A2 claim as required under the Federal rules. Let me come back to your earlier point that the second requirement of of, uh, A2, it's actually a requirement of 1109. That's correct. Is is not met. And that is is to to make good to such plan any losses to the plan resulting from each such breach. In, in these welfare plans, uh, if you'd sue the plan claiming some welfare benefits that haven't been provided, wouldn't the plan have to provide those benefits? Yes, that is a and, classic action under A1B, Your Honor. And that would be a loss to the plan. No, I don't agree with that characterization. In a defined benefit plan, of which a welfare plan is the classic example, right. there are no assets that you have, a, have an entitlement to as a beneficiary. I have an entitlement to certain, certain uh, welfare payments. That, you have an entitlement to a contractually provided benefit. So if there is a fiduciary breach in terms of the, the administrator stating, we're not going to give you this cancer treatment that really was provided under the right. plan, or we're not going to give you this drug, right. that breach doesn't cause any diminution in value in plan assets. It does if you sue the plan and require the plan to pay what the plan has committed to pay. Whereupon the plan would have a right of action against the fiduciary, I assume, for the fiduciary's uh, failure to do what he was supposed to. Well, that may be true, but with respect, I, I think that that is that's the tail wagging the dog. The argument that you've made is that a loss occurs if your fiduciary duty claim is successful. That's not how the statute that's, works. Well, but that, that that would preserve the the necessity of going through the exhaustion requirement first. You apply to the plan no. and say the plan owes me this cancer treatment, and the plan says yes, we do, or no, we don't. If it says yes, we do, it, it's liable to you, and then the plan can can recover over against the trustee. Let me take a step back because I think we're 100 percent in agreement. So I want to be clear about what our position is under the factual scenario that you described. I agree with you 100 percent that you would need to proceed under A1B because you would be requesting a benefit that you are entitled to under the plan. In this case, the only benefit that you are entitled to if you are a participant in an individual account plan is the value of the contributions that you've put or your employers put into the account as they have either appreciated or depreciated. So my first response, which it's actually the second response I was going to give earlier that I never got to, is that I believe that it's not clear that there's even a legitimate A1B claim that Mr. LaRue could have asserted here. Well, wait, it, 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 it isn't just if the money is payable to him today. It says to enforce his rights under the terms or to clarify his rights to future benefits under the terms of the plan. That is correct. And if there's no money in his account, uh, it seems to me he could bring an action to clarify 
that even if there's no money in his account, the plan owes him future benefits in that amount. And then one of two things at that point would happen, Justice Scalia. Either he would get paid by the plan, which would pick the pockets of the other participants and require the plan to then bring an action under A2, which is perfectly legitimate, but my response to that is there's no language in the statute to suggest that that is required. If he has an action to do that directly under A2, there's no language in the statute to suggest that he need bring an A1 action first and require the plan to then proceed under A2. I, I, I'm not sure about your characterization that he would pick the pockets of the other plan participants. By definition, he only prevails if this was a benefit to which he was entitled under the plan. So that doesn't seem unfair to the other plan participants. Well, a defined contribution plan is nothing more than a collection of assets that have been allocated to a group of participants. So if those assets are depleted through fiduciary breach, which is what occurred here, and you bring a claim saying that your interest in the plan was depleted, if you've brought that claim against the plan, the plan no longer has the money. So either they can well, pay it you. May or, it may or may not have the money. You could have uh, failed to follow his instructions in a way that enriched the plan, and it's simply a question of getting that money properly allocated rather than improperly allocated to the other plan participants who are picking the pocket of your client. Well, I I think under the example that you just gave, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, there would not be a loss to the plan. Our our fundamental argument about the plain text of this statute is that a loss to the plan is a diminution in plan assets. If I'm a participant in a plan and the, the administrator doesn't like me, and takes my money and, and allocates it, just because they feel like it, to another participant in the plan. It is not our position that there would be a claim under A2, because there has been no diminution in plan assets. One would need to proceed under A3. But the plan wouldn't necessarily pay out any money. What would happen is after the administrative determination by the plan that it does owe the money, he would sue the plan for the money, and the plan would implead the trustee who was responsible for this. It ends up the same way. Well, I would say two things about that. First, it may end up the same way, depending on how the facts play out, which is the perfect evidence for my point, which is 502A3 of ERISA has been interpreted as a catch-all provision. 502A2 is anything but. It sets forth very specific conditions and very specific relief that is available if those conditions are met. There is nothing to suggest that the availability of a potential remedy under A1 precludes a remedy under A2. Now, my second response, Justice Scalia, is that depending on how the facts play out, the result may not be as you suggest. The plan may choose not to go after the fiduciary. And if that's the case, all at most my client could get is a declaration under A1 that doesn't ultimately get him any money. What, what would happen if the trustee does not have the money? The, the trustee not only squandered your client's money, he squandered his own. He's just really in bad shape. He has no money to cough up. What happens to your client? Doesn't your client get that money from the plan anyway? I think that that — By picking, as you put it, picking the pockets of the, of the other plan participants? I think in an individual account plan, that presents a very difficult question. What's the answer to I think probably he would not be able to recover that money. I think that money would be lost and he would have no remedy. Because at that point in time, 
someone is going to lose. Either my client is not going to recover money that he is entitled to, or other participants in the plan well, are going to have money taken they away from them. participated in the plan. It was a, a failure of the trustee for the plan. It seems to me the whole plan should be liable for it. I mean, I, that's how I, I don't think there's any evidence for that. ERISA imposes a duty of loyalty to all plan participants. If they breach a fiduciary duty, which causes a diminution in plan assets that ultimately will affect only one participant, there is, it goes against the very core of ERISA to say that they can remedy that by taking money from innocent fellow participants. And it, that really goes to the core of the difference between an A2 claim and an A3 claim on one hand and an A1 claim on the other hand. One thing is clear here. Whether or not Mr. LaRue could have brought an A1B claim, it would not under any circumstances have resulted in getting money from the fiduciary back into the plan. Absent money being returned to the plan, there can be no meaningful remedy for the breach that occurred. So it returns us to the core question in this case, which is, were the terms of A2 satisfied? Now, the Court of Appeals basically advanced two arguments as to why the plain text of the statute should be ignored. The primary argument was a fundamental misinterpretation of this Court's opinion in Russell. So I'd like if to speak If we agree that. with you on A2, is there any need to get to A3? Certainly, if you agree with us on A2, the Court of Appeals can be reversed on that issue. We ask that you also reach the A3 question, because this case was decided at the pleading stage. Although it may be unlikely, there are two reasons why we might need to avail ourselves of A3 on remand. The first is that facts could develop. I don't have any reason to believe they will, but facts could develop where there is a loss to Mr. LaRue's beneficial interest, but not a loss to the plan. In other words, they took his money and they gave it to someone else. We should be able to plead if we have a cognizable claim under two statutes, both of them, and then discover the relevant facts. The second reason why you should reach the A3 question is additional relief may be available under A3 that is not available under A2. What would that be? Well, our theory of surcharge, and it's also the government's theory, is that surcharge is a make-whole remedy for pecuniary losses that are caused by a breach of trust. It is clear that the core losses are diminution in trust assets or failure of trust assets to appreciate. But there are individual pecuniary losses that were historically remediable under surcharge. For example, if you paid out of pocket for an auditor to figure out um, what the extent of a fiduciary breach was, uh, a pre-merger court of equity would not only surcharge your harm, the harm to your interest in the trust, but they also would return to you the money that you spent for that audit. I so thought you, your own argument was that A3 is the catch-all. So if A2, which you described, is very precise, if that's applicable, you would not get to A3. You would be asking us at this point to assume that somehow the A2 case folds and then we flip over into A3. But why should we get there be prematurely? It well, seems to me if, if it's right that A2 comes before A3, it, it isn't — it's not quite a ripeness issue, but it's close to that. Well, the Court certainly may choose not to reach the A3 issue, so I can't speak to that. But what I can say is that 
the dicta in Verity that describes A3 as a catch-all provision. It, it is clear that at the end of the day, if the relief is, a, is coterminous under the two provisions, it would not be appropriate for us to proceed under A3. But that is not a pleading question. My position as to why you should reach A3 is, if we have a cognizable theory under A2 and A3, and we believe we do, we shouldn't be required to choose at this point in time if, as the litigation proceeds, it turns out that the, that the relief we would be entitled to is coterminous, then we concede it would not be appropriate to, uh, to proceed under A3. Thank you, Mr. Stris. Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. ERISA authorizes a participant in a defined contribution plan to sue to recover losses to the plan caused by a fiduciary breach, even if the losses are attributable to the participant's individual plan account. But that means every participant, right? In other words, for the failure of the plan to follow this individual's instructions, any participant in the plan can bring suit under A2. It's, uh, that's theoretically possible uh, because um, the loss to the loss to this individual account is a loss to the plan. Although it's unlikely that a participant that uh, has no uh, that is, whose own benefits are not going to be affected, has much incentive to sue. And it's also possible that a court might conclude, um, if such a participant did bring suit, that uh, such a suit shouldn't proceed under prudential standing principles or um, because the suit wouldn't be appropriate. But here — Wouldn't, wouldn't the theory be that if, uh, if ultimately uh, the, the other accounts could be, could be robbed to sort of make up for at least part of the loss of this one, uh, that for a, uh, a loss to any account uh, is a threat to all the others? Well, we agree that a loss to any account is a, is a, a threat uh, to the plan as a whole, but I think for a, a different reason. We don't think that um, you could uh, rob the other accounts to pay uh, this, uh, this participant. That would likely violate uh, the fiduciary's duty of loyalty to those participants, the fiduciary's duty, uh, duty of prudence uh, under under ERISA. Um, it would also probably violate the terms of the plan because they have a right uh, uh, to future benefits uh, by the amount that's account that's in their allocation. But um, Mr. Roberts, uh, Section A, A1B. Yes. Unlike Section A2, which refers you to 1109, does not say who gets sued. Under 1109, it's, it's, it's clear who gets sued. It's, it's the fiduciary who gets sued. I, I find it very curious that, uh, that A1B just says a civil action may be brought to recover benefits due to him under the terms of his plans or to clarify yeah. his right to free under the terms of the plan. Yes. I, I think the implication there is that the suit, the suit is against the plan. The implication is that the suit's against the plan or against a fiduciary in, uh, under A1B. Um, against the plan or against well, the fiduciary in I don't capacity see as representative of the plan. Um, well, if you can't sue the fiduciary under A1B, that just reinforces uh, the point even uh, even more, uh, Your Honor, that um, petitioner's cause of action here arises under A2 because he's seeking relief for the plan, not relief from the plan. It, it may well, but but I'm just talking right now of A1B, and it would seem to me that uh, the logical reading of that is that the suit is against the plan. 
Under A1B, most courts re, uh, require that the suit be brought against the plan. Um, they, I, I think the suit in certain circumstances could be brought against the fiduciary to the require the fiduciary uh, to take action that is required by the terms of the plan, such as how, if you brought it against know, the fiduciary to pay benefits out. How do we know that this is a breach of fiduciary duty under A2 without having the plan before us? In well, other it, words, it may not be a fiduciary obligation to follow an instruction from somebody if the plan provides uh, a different way in which those instructions are going to be handled. Let's say, as I think a lot of these plans do, you can change your investment options, you know, only during a particular period. Well, if the instruction came at a different time, it wouldn't be a breach of fiduciary duties because it wasn't a breach of the plan. And if it's not a breach of fiduciary duties, uh, petitioner will lose on the merits or on remand um, in a motion for summary judgment. But based I on thought his argument, facts, his uh, argument reduces to the fact that it's a breach of fiduciary duty because it's a breach of the plan. Well, if it's, it's not a breach of the plan, then it's not a breach of fiduciary duty. It's a breach of fiduciary duty, uh, both for, of a failure to follow the terms of the plan and a breach of the duty of prudence, um, because when a plan provides that participants can direct their so we need to know we need to know what the plan provides but, but before we can decide. The case was dismissed on the pleadings, Your Honor, and it alleges that there was a breach of fiduciary duty, um, and respondent uh, hasn't uh, disputed, in fact, that the plan requires uh, participants and the uh, pleadings, allows participants to direct, in fact. The pleadings don't include the plan. So we have to assess the pleadings without the, the terms of the plan. Yes, but um, but the inferences shouldn't shouldn't be construed against the plaintiff uh, in a motion to dismiss on the pleadings, Your Honor. And in addition to that, respondent's answer, this is on page two A of uh, the red brief, admitted that participants in the uh, DeWolf plan are permitted to direct the investment of their contributions to the plan. That's in paragraph eight uh, on, on page two A. But we don't, uh, we, we don't know under what terms. I mean, uh, I've seen plans where you're entitled to direct, but that's subject to conditions and limitations. That's, that's certainly true, Your Honor. Uh, but um, here, uh, the Court of Appeals assumed that there was a fiduciary breach. Uh, that's on. Um, Page 3A uh, in the star footnote of the, uh, in the p- appendix to the petition for uh, certiorari. There's no reason for this court uh, to second guess that, particularly since respondent didn't argue in its motion to dismiss that there was no fiduciary breach here. It, so the case comes to the court on the assumption that there's a fiduciary breach, and these are very important questions uh, concerning whether, uh, assuming there is a fiduciary breach, uh, a participant in a defined contribution plan can sue to recover for the plan the losses to the plan that are caused that, uh, by that breach when uh, the losses are attributable only to that individual's Mr. account. Mr. Roberts, would you clarify what the government's position is on this A1B argument? Are you saying it's available but A2 is no, available? We don't, think, we don't think that there's a claim uh, at this point under A1B uh, because um, the, 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 the money the petitioner seeks, what, what's happened here is he's alleged that there has been a fiduciary breach that caused a loss to the plan. The appropriate remedy for that is a recovery from the fiduciary in his personal capacity to put the money back in the plan. That's what Section 502A2 provides. Once the money's back in the plan and then it's allocated uh, a pursuant to the duty of prudence to the petitioner's account, um, then, if the plan didn't pay out uh, the money to him 
um, when he was entitled to it, which he appears to be entitled to it now since he's withdrawn his account balance, he would have a 502A2 claim, but he, uh, 502A1B claim, excuse me. But he doesn't have a claim um, under that uh, provision now. Um, we at least uh, we think it's very unlikely that, that uh, he does because generally plans provide that the benefits that are owed to people are the money that are in, in the account. Well, um, now we know what, what benefits would be due because he's withdrawn, but when he made this complaint and he hadn't with, been withdrawn, he could have made an unwise investment the next time. That, that's right. Nope, um, and then he would, it would be even clearer, I think, that he has no A1B claim um, if uh, he didn't have, say, he was still participating in the plan um, and he wasn't, uh, he hadn't withdrawn his, his account balance and didn't have a right to withdraw his account balance at that time. Um, then he wouldn't have a right to any benefits uh, from the plan. The crux of the matter here is that the plan has suffered a loss and the, the uh, appropriate remedy is against the fiduciary in its personal capacity. A1B doesn't provide for suits against the fiduciary in its personal capacity to recover money for the plan. It provides against suits against the plan um, to pay money out of the plan. This money isn't in the plan. It can't be paid out from the accounts of other participants because uh, it would breach uh, these duties under ERISA. The appropriate remedy is to get the money back in the plan. Um, Do you agree that if it is within A1B that it's therefore not within A2? uh, No, because A1B provides an action for benefits from the plan. Um, and A2 provides an action against it, it's a different against a different defendant for a different kind of claim. Well, I thought your answer would be yes. Then, in other words, if it's in A1, it's not in A2. If it's a claim for benefits under A1 or to enforce uh, the terms of the plan, such as if the fiduciary says, "I'm just not going to follow your instructions," uh, and uh, the participant wants a clarification of of that and a order compelling the fiduciary in its official capacity to do that, yeah, that would be a suit under A1B, and there would be no suit under A2. Um, there's only a suit under A, uh, A2 if there are losses to the plan um, and if the remedy is to put the money back in the plan by getting it from the breaching fiduciary. Uh, if I could turn to A3 uh, just very briefly, Your Honor. Uh, we think that suits against fiduciaries to recover losses by fiduciary breaches are also authorized uh, by Section 502A3, uh, which provides for appropriate equity. 32 we're talking about? Uh, yeah, that's 1132A3. Of the United States Code. Of the United States Code, 29 U.S.C. 1132. I'm Useful to have a code. Sorry. It really is. Okay. I apologize. Um, that, that provision, my time. You finish your sentence. Um, that provision provides for appropriate equitable relief and a suit against a fiduciary to recover losses caused by a breach of fiduciary duty uh, seeks equitable relief because it's analogous to an action for breach of trust seeking the equitable remedy of surcharge. Thank you, Mr. Thank Roberts. You. Mr. Geis. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Petitioner, in our view, suggests an awkward reading of Section 409, one that is particularly hard to reconcile with the structure of the civil enforcement provisions of Section 502, 1132, the U.S. Code, starting, of course, with Section A1B. 
To us, this is the opposite end of the spectrum of the kind of case the Court was talking about in, in, in Russell and what Russell has been assumed to have been meant Russell was about year. a welfare plan, not a pension. Um, and as I recall, the plaintiff in Russell was seeking medical benefits that she didn't get, and she wanted not the benefits because she did get those, she wanted straight-out damages, compensatory and punitive damages for delay in the receipt of benefits. That's quite a different thing from saying, I want the contributions made so that I will get the benefits to which I'm entitled. You're right, Your Honor, that that is uh, certainly distinguishable on the facts. We think the central teaching of Russell, though, applies with equal force to a defined contribution case like this for several reasons, the first of which is that Russell has been assumed to reflect the dicing that we're talking about, about which provision in Section 502 is appropriate. Individual claims have traditionally been brought either under A1B or under A3. When a claim is being brought on behalf of the plan as a whole, Russell teaches and, and, and helps define when those claims are available. It is an odd case here where the plan is a defendant to at the same time assert that this claim is being brought on behalf of the plan. Well, that, that, is, that is an oddity, but what do you say to Mr. Roberts's argument that uh, the, the only recovery uh, under A1B is against the plan, and the plan doesn't have the money in the account, so that if there's going to be any relief, it's got to come from the fiduciary, and that gets you into two. Well, because neither A2 nor A1B were invoked in the district court and the case comes up on a very sparse record, it's hard to... Okay, but we've, we've got to assume at this point uh, that we've, we've, we've got a, um, a, 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 a Section 2 claim before us, and the argument simply is, is that, in effect, to be disallowed because it should have been uh, an A1B claim? And the, the argument that the United States has made, the argument that the other side has made is, we cannot get to any money uh, under A1B. We've got to get that from the fiduciary, and we can only do that uh, under two. The, the difference between defined contribution plans and defined benefit plans in ERISA is an important consideration in answering that question. A1B, the first clause, speaks of recovering benefits due to him. As you know from our briefs, we argue this is a case for lost profits, not benefits, certainly not vested benefits in the way the Court used the term in Firestone. So then you would agree that A1B is not available? No, Your Honor. We think A1B definitely was available for the petitioner here. What relief he might have recovered under A1B had he invoked that provision remains to would, would have remained to have been seen had it been evoked. There are well, but the argument of the United States is that you can't rob Peter to pay Paul, so that if, in fact, his account didn't have the money, uh, the plan didn't have any place to get the money, and the only way the money could be had would have been from a fiduciary, which, again, gets you uh, to subsection 2. It would only get you into subsection 2 if it could be argued that that claim was for the benefit of the plan as a whole, as this Court has taught in Russell. And it's, it seems to me, Your Honor, that one way to think about this in terms of which provision applies to which of these claims is whether Congress really intended for these individual kinds of he said, she said claims to be brought. We think not. Oh, okay. But it seems to me you're, you're answering a different question in, in that response. 
The argument here uh, is basically an argument um, be, between the possibility, uh, an, an argument based on the claim uh, that under A1B you can't go against the fiduciary. The only way you can get the money is from a fiduciary, and therefore A1B would have been of no value to you. Uh, do you do you take issue with that premise? Well, we think uh, no, 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 Your Honor. In, in general, we do not take issue with. Okay, that then doesn't that leave you uh, in the position of having to say that you've either got to bring the claim under A1B, or you've got a, 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 a subsection two? or you've got to bring it under subsection 3. We think not for this reason. The second clause of A1B permits a cause of action to enforce his rights under the terms of the plan. This is a case that if you give the petitioner full benefit of the doubt, probably could have been resolved with a telephone call. A1B permits an action to enforce his rights under the terms of the plan. And the answer, if the premise you have just agreed to is correct, will be, you bet. He's entitled to have another $150,000 in his account for the benefit of, 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 of future payments to him. Well, we think but we haven't got the money, and we can't rob Peter to pay Paul, and therefore we're very sorry. Go away. That would necessarily be the answer. Well, we think not with respect, Justice Souter, for this reason. Keep in mind the theory here is one for lost appreciation in the account. This plan does not have But that's assets. going to the, it seems to, with respect, I think that's going to the merits. And, and, and the question is, if you can recover against anybody, the claim is, the argument is, you're going to get nowhere uh, under, under A1B because the, the plan can't help you by itself. The only way you can get any value from your lawsuit is by going against the fiduciary. Maybe you have good reasons uh, to defend that. But if you're going to have a suit against anyone, it's got to be under subsection 2. And I think the answer to that, Justice Souter, is that it, it reflects how careful and interrelated these provisions in 502 are. And they're saying their careful and interrelated provisions mean that you've got to go under subsection 2. To which and, we and say. And you're, I think, saying uh, we, 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 we agree with you that ultimately 1B couldn't get you any relief because uh, the, the, fiducia, the, the plan doesn't have any money. And, and you're now arguing, well, if you go against the fiduciary, uh, ultimately we have a good defense to that. But the fact is, the question before us is, whom do you sue and under, one, under what section? And I think your own logic forces you to say that that, that has got to be subsection 2. Well, uh, one more uh, answer to your question about A1B, Justice Souter, is this. As you know, ERISA is a statute that provides for limited remedies. And the question of what remedies might be available under A1 and whether or not this defendant would be solvent or somebody else would have to be impleted, in our view, need not be decided in this case. We think it's sufficient to identify well, that yet, as another uh, remedy that could have been pursued here. If, if there is a suit under A1B uh, for breach of the plan by a fiduciary, do you agree that the plan, if it's liable, could then sue the fiduciary? I realize I'm talking about a suit by one of your clients against the other, but would, would that be a, a uh, res feasible result under the statute? Yes, it is. And it's also possible, depending on the facts, and again, from this sparse record, it's hard to know that there could be an action 
uh, filed against whoever it was who's alleged to have made the mistake. One of the issues, of course, in this case is it's not clear who made the mistake or whether or not the mistake was, in fact, a breach of fiduciary duty. Is it entirely clear that the uh, plan itself does not have any money to pay this off unless it uh, takes the money from other individual accounts? I thought one of the briefs said that uh, that, that, that some plans have uh, um, independent funds I forget what sources they came from, but some slush fund that they could use for, for this purpose. What you're talking about, I think, Justice Scalia, it wasn't is, a, called a slush is a fund, plan that provides for pooled assets. This plan does not. And so the answer to your question is no, there is no other place to get the money from, which we think is another reason why this is not an appropriate claim under A2. It is not losses to the plan in the conventional way we understand those words. But what is the plan other than a collection of individuals? I mean, the, the trustee is the trustee for the plan. All of the assets are there. The individuals do not have them. In, the, in their pockets. So the trustee is managing this fund, which is then segmented into accounts for each individual. So I think your, uh, your suggestion is that the, these defined contribution plans, they come out entirely because, because of the segmented accounts, so you could never bring uh, a claim because it would always be an individual. Well, we think that A2, properly read, does not uh, uh, permit an individual claim. A3 permits a claim for equitable relief, and A1B would permit a claim for benefits. Why? The Why? Do. That's the question, it seems to me, in the case. Why? I mean, imaginary example. Plan, 1,000 members. The trustee invests in 1,000 diamonds. He puts it in a bank deposit vault. One day he takes all 500 diamonds and runs off to Martinique. We catch him, enjoying the sun. We can sue him under two, right? That's what two's there for, right? Right. Okay. Now, everything's the same, except each of the 1,000 diamonds was put in an individual safe deposit box with the participant's name on it. Everything else is the same. Why should it matter? We think relief in that situation, including recovery of the diamonds and any profits associated with it, would be available under A3. Well, I'm sorry. That's I'm not interested in that question. I'm interested in my question. Why isn't it available under A2? In both cases, the trustee took 500 diamonds that belonged to the plan and went to Martinique. Now, if you can sue him when the plans are all put in one big safe deposit box, with the diamonds, rather, why can't you sue him when they're put in 500 small safe deposit boxes? I think the structure of defined contribution plans makes that a little uh, inapt of an analogy with respect, Justice Breyer. In this plan, as we know, 
the assets are not pooled. It is, of course, the sum and total of the individual plan accounts. But the question of legal ownership is different from the question of whether or not, in this case, it ought to be read as losses to the plan. Here, it is by definition the most individual kind of claim that anybody could think about. It is a run-of-the-mill, as alleged, claim between an investor and a stockbroker, essentially that the stockbroker did not execute the trade. But do you dispute that there was not, that there was a loss to the plan in the literal sense? Yes, we do. Right. For, for, for two reasons. First of all, there was no distribution until after he cashed out. And second, the nature of this claim, again, is for lost profits. It is not for benefits as in the sense of a defined benefit plan. And if you can accept the truth of his allegations, wouldn't the plan have greater assets? than it, it had? No, because there's no way to imagine that anybody made out on this. This is a case where the investment instruction was not followed. There's no way to imagine that my clients made any money on that. No, but you're arguing that, that ultimately he couldn't prove damages. We're talking about allegations at the pleading stage. Let me ask you a slightly different question. You've said there's, there's no, uh, there's no, as Justice Scalia put it, there's no slush fund. There's no pooled assets here. All the assets are, are assets which are accounted for, attributable to individual accounts. Uh, therefore, there can, be no there can be no loss to the plan, which is not a loss to an individual account, can there be? Yes, sir. That's correct. Uh, then what is your theory on how we determine whether a loss to the plan from an individual account suffices as a loss to the plan for purposes of, of pleading? Uh, has it got to be, you know, 500 losses out of 1,000? Uh, uh, I, I, I don't see why that should make a difference. I'm going back to Justice Breyer's question. Yeah, I don't think the actual number makes any difference, but I think the nature of the allegation, the type of fiduciary breach does. No, in but the, in why the stock drop the, cases. Maybe, there's something I'm not understanding about your argument. When you say the nature of the fiduciary breach pleaded is what makes the difference, I am understanding you to be answering the question whether on the merits, ultimately, there will be a, uh, they will be able to make out a claim. And I am saying, as I said once before, that that seems to me a question that comes after you answer the question before us. And the question before us is not whether ultimately you've, you've stated a winning claim but whether ultimately, whether right now you have stated a claim for a loss to the plan. Now, that is not your view. Why is it that uh, I am taking your answer to be an answer on the merits to a different question, and you're saying my answer, i.e., nature of, of, of duty uh, uh, breached, or is, is, is one that goes to the question of, of pleading at this stage? Because of the words losses to the plan in the text, the words on the page, in the context of the rest of 502, the words losses to the plan connote something collective. Uh, the example yes, but you right. said, as you said, it doesn't have to be every single member of the that, plan. That is correct, Justice You Kennedy. said it has to be more than one. How, then, do we read the statute to say, well, it doesn't have to be the plan as a whole, because there may be some people that are not entitled to this, how do we get that number between more than one and less than everybody? 
I would try, I don't think that that's a, a useful way to think about it either, Justice Ginsburg, which is why I think the right way to think about it in the context of this statute is to think about the nature of the allegation at the pleading stage. In the stock drop cases, the fiduciary breach alleged is an imprudent investment in holding company stock. I think the diamond analogy is closer to but, that. But I'm, I'm asking you just in your, you have said, you've conceded that to bring a suit against the trustee, it doesn't have to involve every member, every contributor to this defined contribution plan. But it has to involve more than one. So that's the question I'd like you to address. You you recognize that there can be a claim against the fiduciary for breach of trust on behalf of contributors to the plan. So in that lawsuit, How many people would there have to be to qualify? You say not everybody, but more than one. Well, as we've argued, we think it ought to be a substantial subset reflecting the nature of the breach alleged. That is something systemic, something that affects the interests of the plan as a whole rather than just one individual plan participant. For example, a choice of an imprudent investment, Your Honor where, and that's where most of these stock drop cases come, they involve company stock held in 401k plans, and the allegation is that it's imprudent to continue to hold the shares of the stock. All right, if you do that in two accounts, is that enough? It, 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 it very well might be. To us, and Why not one? Because the, if it's the, if it's, if it is the, and, and I still don't get this, but if it is the, the nature of the particular uh, uh, dereliction in duty that counts, why do we need more than one? Because the nature of the dereliction of duty here is the most uh, hard to conceive of a more individualistic kind of a breach. This is just one dispute, one he said, she said between a It's an individualistic kind of breach when it is viewed uh, as, as only one account. But it is a breach against the plan when it is understood that there is nothing to the plan except an aggregation of accounts. You can't have a breach against one without a breach against the plan. To which we would say, Justice Souter, that it's qualitatively different to breach a duty, as alleged here, on an individual basis, on a one-transaction basis in one account. Then why, if that is your answer, why does it matter what the nature of the dereliction is? Because you're, you're, you're saying the, the, the really important question is the nature of the dereliction. If it is, then I don't see why the multiple of the number of accounts affected has anything to do with it. Well, I suppose you could imagine, uh, Justice Souter, a fact pattern where there was evidence, not in this case, of course, that there was a pattern, a systemic failure to handle properly investment requests made. And you've got a lot of plaintiffs, but what difference does it make? Well, we think that comes closer to what, how we read Russell and how Russell has been understood. That may be close to the way you read it, but why is your reading correct? Why should that make any difference? Because in context with the rest of 502, 502A2 has been understood, and we think for good reason, not to apply to an individual case. There are other remedies available. What? A1B. What other remedies? In A1B and in A3 for equitable relief. But you, you said this isn't, you said it isn't a claim for benefits. It's a claim for lost profits. You said that a few times. I thought A1B is a claim for benefits current or future. The third part of A1B permits a a participant to sue to enforce his rights under the terms of the plan. Which will will get him nothing. It it might have got him the trade made maybe a few days late. I want to go back to the men's example. Uh, He only took one diamond. 
It was a big vault he took it from, one diamond. You still have the claim, right? And, and is that is that yeah, it's uh, a big big vault he took it from one big safe deposit box and is and it is one a, diamond is is it identified in one account you know they're just uh, there in the big vault well that's uh, that's a fundamental difference of course between well, no no I'm going to of course ask you since you <laughs> seem to be turning this thing on how individualized this loss was well it was just one diamond and out of the thousand now obviously I'm going to ask you because I haven't yet heard the answer at least. I didn't seem to hear it, uh, uh, what the difference is, whether that one diamond came from a big vault or from one little safe deposit box with the participant's label on it. It's still the same kind of loss, obviously. You're correct, Justice Breyer. Exactly. The same kind of loss. And what we have here is the footnote that was alleged and written read in the opinion. We assume the defendant's conduct amounted to a breach of fiduciary duties. So, therefore, all the discussion you have that maybe it didn't, well, maybe you're right. But we better send it back so that they can decide that question. And uh, I just don't see what the other difference is. It can't be a difference in the size of the diamond. And uh, people are saying, well, why? Do you? Well, you see the question. I, I do indeed, Justice Breyer. And I think the structure of the plan bears something on, on, on the right answer. Because this plan does not have pooled assets accounts, there is no way that this alleged loss could have had any impact on any other plan participant, nor could any recovery here yes, benefit the plan as a whole. Can I ask this question about your individual point? What if the individual's account was 60 percent of the assets of the total plan? Because different accounts are of different sizes. Would you give the same answer to that? I'd give the same answer, Justice Stevens, in a situation like this with what I call the classic one-off, he said, she said, a request to make a brokerage trade. Even if it was 90 percent, you give the same answer? I could imagine a situation where the percentage gets so high that the assets might be held in such a way that there could easily be more easily seen to be a loss to the plan as a whole. For example, in some of these plans, there's an investment in illiquid. One individual, and it's, as far as we know, it's a very small percentage of the total. That's the whole case, as I understand. That, that, that's, that's correct, Justice Stevens. I think it probably depends in your hypothetical on the nature of the asset. If it's mutual fund shares, as in this plan, held by individuals, I don't think it would make any difference. Some plans hold assets in common. This one does not. You know, I could understand your case if you said even if there were a hundred diamonds, each of them in an individual plan, there still is no loss to the plan until the plan itself has been held liable to make up for the loss. Up until that point, it's just a loss in each of the individual accounts. But you're not willing to say that. You, you say at some ineffable point, it becomes a loss to the plan. I, I think there's a clear line between, between saying there's no loss to the plan unless, un, unless the plan is first adjudicated to be liable. Then there's a loss to the plan. Well, we Prior to that, it's just a loss to the individual accounts. That makes it some sense. I mean, I can understand how that works. I can't understand how your system works. You're, you're telling me it uh, uh, depends on, on how big the diamond is and, and, and what kind of a breach it was. How could we write an opinion like that? <laughs> I'm fortunate to have that not as my job, Justice Scalia. But I think... I think it's clearly right, as this discussion indicates, that the right place to begin here is with A1B. If you have a claim like this, you look at the statute, it comes first. It has the benefit of being first in the I don't recall you making the, uh, hitching your wagon to the A1B 
I thought you were arguing, and you, what did you say the remedy for this person would be? Assuming it's true that he put in his slip and he said invest in X set of mutual funds and the trustee missed it, lost it. Right. What is his remedy? That's a very difficult question to answer because this is a defined contribution plan and not a defined benefit plan. And this is a claim for lost profits. It's not an easy claim for lost benefits. Now, that's why the second clause of A1B, to enforce his rights under the plan, we think is the best part of A1B, that this is individual that what you argued in your brief? We did not, but our amici. Now, so what did you argue was his remedy in your brief? Our, what we argue in our brief and what we still say is that he could have pursued equitable relief under A3. What and would that be? He could have made, picked up the telephone and called and said, like I think most of us would, say, I asked you to sh- uh, sell my sales of stock, my, uh, and it hasn't happened yet. And he, he didn't had- know till he got the report. Well, that's not so clear from the record, Justice Ginsburg. But in any case, what, what equitable relief under A3, just as A1B would permit him, is to get an injunction to force the trade to be executed. But it's much too late. It's over and done. It, it wasn't it, made. it may or may not be much too late, Justice Ginsburg, which we think is another reason why, as to A2, we think it's unlikely that Congress intended every one of these he-said-she-said cases to give rise to a cause of action for damages. There would be no end to the kinds of claims that one could imagine. This is a, if, let's take, because this, this case was tossed out on the pleadings, the, there, there are forms to fill out and says, I want this set of investments as opposed to that set of investments. The contributor fills out that form, gives it to the fiduciary. A careless employee for the fiduciary loses it. Mm-hmm. And that's the story. So what's the remedy for the contributor who gave his instruction, they weren't followed, not out of anything deliberate, but just carelessness. Well, certainly injunctive relief under A3 would have been available. Enjoin him from being careless? Enjoining him to execute the trade was, was clearly a remedy available. And perhaps there would have if been you, a remedy. If you said, I want this, these ones inv- invested in this particular set of shares for this period, for this six-month period, then two years later, you, you can have that trade made? I don't understand it. Well, we think the fact that it took him so long to sue is another reflection of the fact that this is a claim for damages. Had he really intended the trade to have been made, the normal thing to have done would be to call up and say, say, my trade wasn't made, please make it. And if that you didn't get an adequate response, you'd bring an action for an injunction. It's gone trade, up meanwhile. I mean, you know. And the stock he, may he have came in right at, right at the bottom, and a week later, it had gone up 30 points. And we think that Congress... No remedy? We think that Congress did not want those kinds of claims to be brought under A2 precisely for that kind of reason. There'd be no end to the kind of arguments about damages, and, and, and those kinds of cases impose costs that will ultimately borne by, be borne by the plans, which is inconsistent with the congressional uh, purpose in ERISA to encourage plan formation. So this statute on this kind of a situation may provide him some remedies, but maybe not a complete remedy for loss of all the profits that he claims he was not. You view it as a lost profits claim. Would your position be different if he directed a sale of the stock and then the stock went down 30 points instead of going up? That's not lost profits. That's avoiding 
losses to the plan. We think we'd have a different situation, indeed, if there actually had been a distribution here and the amount of the account had gone down between the alleged mistake and the distribution. There it's clear it's a claim for benefits under A1B. And there I think quite easily the Court could say that in that situation the full value of the account at the time of the alleged mistake would be benefits under the terms of the plan. And we think that's a material distinction between this case and others, including the case called Gorey's versus Charles Schwab that comes out of the Ninth Circuit. Now, with respect to A3, we think that the equitable relief is uh, properly understood not to include compensatory damages, and that this Court's decisions have been clear on that. As to surcharge, it would seem to me that the one, the best that one can say is that it was the exception and not the rule, and not typically available in the courts of equity as this Court has understood this. That, and that never term. available in a court of law. And never available in a court of law. You're exactly no, right. What is it? I mean, it's got to be something. Well, I think, I think what it was, as I understand the history of, of the the equity jurisprudence is that you could only sue the trustee in the equity courts. And so if you needed to get money and, you, and it was a damages claim, that was the only place where you but could bring the action. This isn't like a cleanup. It is not. Clear up. It is not. As we understand the argument on surcharge, it is separate from cleanup, and we understand that and accept that. But it still sounds more like damages. It sounds something very different from what Congress, we think, meant when they wrote the language of 502. Unlike the Landrum-Griffin Act, which permits actions for damages, ERISA does not. And Landrum-Griffin was one of the statutes on which ERISA was based. It also has fiduciary duty obligations. It also has the interests of beneficiaries, members of labor unions at heart. And unlike this provision in ERISA, the Landrum-Griffin Act explicitly permits an action for damages. And we think that's further evidence of the fact that appropriate equitable relief in a situation like this under A3 does not include a claim like this for compensatory damages. If there are no further questions, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Geis. The case is submitted.